0: Welcome everybody to some very special editions of the From the Clubhouse podcast. It is open week and we are at Royal Liverpool to savour everything that is magical and special about the world's oldest major and obviously a special competition needs a special course and Royal Liverpool has always been close to my heart and definitely has for our First guest of our week of podcasts, we're delighted to be joined by lifetime Royal Liverpool member and associate at Clayton, DeFries and Pont Architect, Sam Cooper. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me in your clubhouse, Steve. Oh, I love, I love that. In our clubhouse, that's very, that's very personal. I love it. I love it. Um, people who um, might just be listening to this for the first time um, may know you um, for your epic odyssey. During lockdown, where armed with a camper van, a set of golf clubs, and your other half, you you embarked on a, on, a, on a magical trek across the links courses of um, of the UK. So, just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, poor Harriet, my wife. She um, she was dragged round all of the British ones. So, I did all of England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, two hundred twenty five courses I played over. It ended up being just over two years in the end. But we were dodging lockdowns etc you know we'd be away and then there'd be another lockdown so we'd have to come home and and um and then when that was relaxed and we were able to move again we'd go back and pick up where we left off really and yeah I, I went from having a relatively conventional life I used to work in the property residential property world uh, to what I do now so I'm very lucky to write and design write about and design golf courses for a living
0: did you think that when you did that, it would open up some of the doors that it subsequently has? I mean, it was, a, it was a trip that required some fortitude, as you said, as well with lockdown. It was a lot of stop starts, but I mean, you couldn't imagine that it would lead to a career in the golf industry. Not for a moment. Uh, and I think, Steve, you were actually
1: the first person to write a little article about it for National Club Golf. And it must have been back in October 2020 or maybe September. Um, and that was, you know, we, I'm, I'm not really the kind of person to go out and self publicize, believe it or not. Um, but when we started doing it, and more and more people were interested and I thought, you know, what, maybe I should, maybe we should embrace this and write about what we're doing. And I'm so glad that I did. Uh, and that was Harriet sort of saying you should be doing this. I didn't think anyone would be interested. And subsequently, it turns out that actually a few people were, which is quite, quite nice and generous of them because it, as I say, well, as you say, it means I now have all of these opportunities in golf that I absolutely wouldn't have had before. So very, very lucky to have done it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit, if you could, about your role with CDP, because I think... um you know, reading your blog and, and anyone who did um, quickly worked out that A, you had a flair for writing and, and and B, you obviously had a strong nose for good golf course architecture as well. So um, just tell me a little bit about your role with CDP and, and what you do on a kind of regular basis.
1: So for those who aren't aware, CDP was sort of the, um, the amalgamation of three different long-standing, very successful architecture practices from around the world. So the C is a bloke called Mike Clayton. So people listening to this are people who listen to podcasts. So there's a very good chance they've heard Clayton on a podcast somewhere. You know, he's a uh, voracious podcaster. Uh, but also he's uh, was a successful player. Uh, he's an Aussie. He's refurbished most, most of the Melbourne sand belts over his second career then as a golf course architect. Uh, and before he joined... CDP he was with Jeff Ogilvy um, OCM Ogilvy Cocking and Meads but it was Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead OCCM uh, and then he decided he wanted to work with with our guys and and over he came and that was part of the part of the start of the firm likewise Mike DeVries very very well known in architecture circles perhaps slightly less known in Britain but Mike is he was one of the original, roster of Tom Doak's architecture firm of Renaissance Golf Design so the original three for the first few years were Tom Doak, Gil Hans and Mike DeVries. and obviously they've all gone on to individually have the most amazing careers. Um, and then finally Frank Pont, so Frank is probably one of the most well-respected cult restorers you know, he loves Harry Colt, he loves Tom Simpson, loves the classic, um, classic age golf courses. He's based in the Netherlands, but he and I do, um, almost everything together in Britain. So yeah, so I was brought in and, and very, very lucky. So Frank and I, with a bit of help from Clates and and Mike DeVries, we basically cover Britain and work together on those things. And then we've got a couple of other colleagues, uh, Ed Cartwright and Bill Longmule chips in as well. So we're very, very lucky that we have a, an eclectic team and we all, we all sort of work together.
0: Are you working on any exciting projects at the moment?
1: Yeah, more than more than just a few. Um, so the probably the one that's got the most coverage in Britain would be the Addington, just south of London, uh, an extensive refurbishment, a proper refurbishment, taking it back to what was down there uh, and with a great client in Ryan Nodes, who's the uh, sort of co-owner and managing director down there. So he, he um, he's the perfect client in this. He's not a green committee. He, he makes decisions there and then, um, but, but uh, an exciting, very, very exciting course and project to be doing because that's got um, so much potential and it's a, such a fabulous golf course. Uh, so there we're, we're working locally to where I'm sitting in Hoylake. We're working just down the road at Wallasey, we're working at Hallamshire. We're working at Fraserburgh up in the northeast of Scotland. We're working at Spey Bay for the Linksdale guys who who bought the, the course with the crypto money. So we've got some
0: fascinating projects um, and some brilliant
1: places. So very fortunate.
0: Yeah, I think the early signs um, from the Addington are extremely positive already. I'm really interested to see... Um, what you do with Hallamshire as well which is um, um, f- we're obviously based in Yorkshire at, at National Club Golfer so it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a course I've seen a lot of and uh, fantastic in places so to see how you be, you'll be able to improve that is, is is really something I think to look forward to um, but you are here um, because you are also a lifetime Royal Liverpool member um, it's a place I think that you've said many times is extremely close to your heart and obviously um, it the course is the, and rightly, the focus of attention this week as much as the players. So just you, you give me a little bit about your background, Sam, at, um, at Royal Liverpool, and then we'll start dissecting some of the various elements of the course that um, people who are coming to the Open this week and people who are watching on television can look
1: Yeah, so Hoylake was the first place I ever swung a golf club. It was went down for group lessons when I was I know, six or seven years old and my dad would take me down and we'd have a chip, we'd have a person. then when I got a bit older we'd go out onto the golf course and I'd um I just got addicted as you know as so many of us do really, really young. It was we had a, an amazing crop of sort of juniors basically when I was when I were a lad kind of thing. And um I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was we were sort of of an age when Tiger Woods was inspiring golf and making golf cool and, or, or whether it was just fortunate that some of our parents were, um, had had a similar kind of thing in, in their youth and, and they'd all got addicted. And then we were the, the kids of those guys and they'd introduced us to the game. So I don't know what made us so lucky to, um, to, to, have so many of us who play golf at Hoylake. But, you know, same old story, same old place of any any other golf course, I think, for kids growing up in Britain. We would just go down in the summer holidays and be dragged away in the evening by our parents. We'd play golf. We'd go around the putting green. We'd chip until the light ran out. You know, we were just addicted to the game. And, and for us, Hoylake was just our local golf course. And we knew it was good. But we didn't appreciate how special it was, I, I would say. And certainly for me, until I got a little older, I travelled a little bit more and I realised that not everywhere was like Hoylik. And what makes it quite special, I think, of the many, many things, the the many things that is has given to the game of golf, because so much historically happened at Hoylik and was started as Hoylick, but what makes it most special of all to me is the fact that of the similar you know, quote unquote great clubs of of Britain, uh often there's sort of commuting clubs where you might live in Edinburgh and travel down to Muirfield for the day or but Hoylake, everyone lives within sort of ten miles of the golf course, five miles of the golf course. So you go down and you know every single person in the In the spike bar, you know, you could go and put your name down to play in a competition and someone will put their name down. You probably know them because you've played with them before. And it's a local
0: members club that just happens to be of sort of world renown, really. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because I think that my experience of of there has been, you know, when you think about the, the great traditional clubs, um, the atmosphere at Hoyle is a little bit different, I think. And your experiences as a junior seem to um, seem to centre that quite perfectly. I think that you could have gone to a number of places where as a junior, you probably weren't quite so welcome to be playing all day and all night in the summer. But there is this, although it's a great club and a very traditional club, there's a very welcoming vibe about Royal Liverpool as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think that sums us up more than anything. Uh, you, you know, there's... The great histories, and we'll probably talk about that. There's the great, magnificent clubhouse that we have and the social functions that we have in the game and the matches that we have. And and we're very, very lucky to have all of those things. And then, of course, there's a golf course that's not just brilliant in its own right, but that this week brings in the world's best players and tests them, and to some of them, it will give them a good hiding. You know, if the wind blows, then... Uh, it's one of the most challenging courses that you can possibly play, but for all of those great sort of attributes, what makes it special is the fact that it's a normal golf club, and it's not pretentious. It's not trying to be. Uh, it, it's not uncomfortable in its own skin. It's just my club, and there are you know a few hundred other people who say exactly the same thing, and we're immensely proud of that.
0: Did I, did I read somewhere that the first professional tournament was held at Royal Liverpool? Is that right?
1: Well, in England, yes. Yeah. So, um, obviously, English golf is a lot younger than Scottish golf. Um, if you think of the old clubs in Scotland, I think the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers who weren't playing at Muirfield then, they were probably at Leaf, thinks. Uh, they were 1744. I think the RNA was 1754, uh, obviously, the uh, Open Championship started at Prestwick in 1860. So they had a lot of golf before golf was played in Britain, and it was only really 1864 that golf was okay. There was there was Royal Blackheath, and they'd been playing uh, for a long time before that. But generally, the golf clubs of Britain. I think 1864, so, you know, we're after the Open had started. We're after hundreds of years of golfing evolutions in Scotland. So it was 1864, you had Royal North Devon, Westwood Ho. Uh, then Royal Wimbledon came on, and then we came along in 1869. But we had a really quick start then. So 1869, we, we, we started as a nine-hole golf course, uh, it was founded by Scots, really, who were trading and working in Liverpool, which at that time was, you know, sort of the great port of the empire, really. So Liverpool was a fabulously wealthy city and um, brought a lot of people from all over the, the empire to to come and base themselves there. Uh, so it was probably a natural place that golf really took off from, from Royal Liverpool. Um, geographically, we're probably... Well, if I got the train from the end of my road, it's about twenty-five minutes into Liverpool City Centre. Uh, so we're we're not far away at all, really. But we're sort of slightly removed on the other side of the River Mersey, across the Wirral, uh, on the side closest to to Wales. If, if we look across the the D3 on the other side, so we're on this little peninsula sticking out just south of Liverpool, and. Yeah, it was those Scottish traders and um, shipbuilders and all the rest of it that that brought golf down here. But the professional tournament that you mentioned there, I think that was 1871. And that was the first time, to my knowledge, that the Scots, the great professional golfers, because they were all Scots in that era, um, and they were caddies and whatever, but professionals within the game, they were brought down because it was the year when there was no Open Championship. You, listeners will know the story, of course, of young Tom winning three Opens in a row, retiring the Championship belt, and, and then they had a year off when they worked out what they should do for a trophy, etc. And in that year off, in that follow year, the members at Hoylake had a whip around, and instead of the purse for the Open being £10, they raised £100, Brought all of the best Scots, the best pros of the day down to Hoylake, which is, was only a couple of years old at that point, and had the Grand Professional Tournament, which of course, young Tom won uh, Won again. So he, he won down here. So I think it was probably the first time there was a proper uh, tournament for professional golfers
0: with a big purse in England. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, two golfers I think that are synonymous with um, Hoyleck's early history, uh, obviously John Ball and Harold Hilton. I think there is – I hope hope I've not got this wrong, but I think there's an excellent passage in Robert Hunter's book, The Links, um, about John Ball, um, which is just fantastic. And if anyone gets the chance to read that book, they really should. But um, obviously, young Tom Morris coming here and winning sets the club off on a massively upward curve straight away to have the obviously dynamo of the game, the undisputed star of the game coming and winning at, at Royal Liverpool. But then just give me a sense, if you could, of the influence of John Ball and then Harold Hilton on really pushing the club at, to the forefront of English golf, certainly. T-
1: to do that, can I um, go off-piece just for a moment and of go back through the opens? Because I think what makes golf so... Interesting, is it's a proper global game. You know, it's not just played by the Scots or the English or whatever anymore. It's played almost everywhere around the world, and I think the Open Championship is a was a big, big driver in that. Um, so you know, golf nowadays we take it for granted that every single country in the world, uh, near enough, um, sort of has golf in some capacity. But it was only in the nineteen 19- 50s and 60s, really, that the proper international flavor came to the Open Championship. You know, um, Divincenzo is a South American one in 1967, and you had the likes of Gary Player and the South Africans coming in in the in the 50s and 60s, and Peter Thompson being so dominant as an Australian in the 1950s as well. So you know that was sort of the culmination of the evolution with all of those guys coming in. Um, and bringing in a proper, proper international feel to the championship, and then before that, the Americans came in sort of the nineteen twenties. I, I think you you had Walter Hagen win the Open at Royal St George's. Well, I'm not very good at this. Maybe nineteen twenty two, but you know before then, the Americans didn't really play or compete in the in the Open Championship so much. And then of course, Bobby Jones won, funnily enough, at Hoylake in his Grand Slam year. Of 1930, So that was probably the, the era when the, uh, you know, after the, between the wars, let's say, when the Americans started coming over. But back to when Hoylake had its first Open, and back when John Ball and Harold Hilton were starting their careers as golfers, it was, it wasn't an international game, it wasn't even a national game in the UK. It was a Scottish game, and up until 1890, it had only ever been won by Scottish golfers, who were all professional, and it had only ever been played on um, on Scottish golf courses. So by 1890, the rotor was Preswick, Musselburgh, and the Old Course, and there was there was no one else, no other English courses, certainly no Irish course, uh, Northern Irish course. There was there was no one else, just the Scots. But John Ball, who was an Englishman, who'd grown up playing golf on the links of Hoylake, his father actually was the uh, landlord of the hotel where the club's first clubhouse was located. So he really did grow up sort of with, in and amongst the golfers of, of Hoylake. And crucially, he was an Englishman and crucially, he was an amateur, but he went up to Presswick in 1890 and he won. And he sort of quote-unquote, beat the Scots at their own game and and captured all of the Victorian Englishmen who were slightly more uh, holier than thou, perhaps, and thought, oh, this is a game for the working-class Scots. And here we have an amateur Englishman going and, and winning. And it, it really changed golf, because you then had an era where the English were were competing and actually dominating the game. So then you had, uh, in 1892, Harold Hilton, his another bloke from Hoylake, another amateur, he wins the Open uh, the first time it was played at Muirfield. Then in 1894, maybe it was 1894, an English course gets added to the Open Rotor, and it was Royal St George's. So the the championship comes down from Scotland to South East England, and, uh, and it's played down there. In 1897... Hilton wins it again and he wins it at Hoylake. the first time it was played at Hoylake, and the second time it, it had come down from Scotland to England. So you've really got this proper open rotor that we now we now know of of the championship travelling around from England to Scotland and, and then over the years, you know, that that grew and, and grew. But it also was the era where, you know, you had Harry Varden from Jersey, But, you know, an Englishman coming and winning six Opens over his career. And J.H. Taylor from Raw North Devon that we're talking about before, he won five. So it was really the perhaps a bit of a flashpoint jumble, uh, him going up to Presswick, winning the Open, and setting a start to this n- new era where England and Scotland were both playing golf and competing against one another, and it was that sort of starting point where, as I say, it was an inflection point, and then there was another one where it goes to America, and another one where it goes around the world, and and we end up where we are today after these exciting moments that kickstart a new chapter.
0: Yeah, I think you can um, judge a course by some of the people who've won on it, and if you look at the roll call of uh, open winners at Royal Liverpool. They're, they're pretty special. McElroy, Tiger Woods, obviously, you mentioned DiVincenzo, Peter Thompson, Walter Hagen, J.H. Taylor, um, Bobby Jones, obviously, I mean, the most famous of them in, in 1930 and, and on his way to the Grand Slam. What, what do you think it is about the links that really allows the cream of the crop to rise?
1: Oh, um, that's a really good question. It's not tricked up at Hoylake in general. It's a it's flat. Everyone knows it's it's flat. It's not quite perhaps quite as flat as people think. We have a run of holes in the sand hills that are as, as beautiful and rumpling and as magnificent as a stretch of proper links golf as you'll find anywhere in the world. But, you know, people do think of the the flatter holes near the clubhouse which play around the old racetrack. Um, which was a horse racing ground before golf started at Hoylake. And they think of those, and what Hoylake is, is I'd say it's a thinking person's golf course. I think you've got to engage your brain, and you can't just stand on the tee, smack drive down the middle, and, and expect that that's the best tee shot to have hit. I think Tiger proved that perfectly in 2006, where in the 72 holes he hit one driver and then was annoyed with himself when he missed the fairway and put it back in his bag and said stick to the game plan tiger you know and hit his two iron everywhere and i think that's the perfect example of a golf course where a lot of people will come play here once and go oh i didn't get it you know that's how's that an open an open golf course but the more you play here and every subsequent visit, you you learn something new and you realize, actually, I, I shouldn't have been down the right of that fairway. I should try to be down the left of that fairway because then I have a chance of getting to that pin. And from over here, I don't. And that's the story that you can pretty much learn on every single hole, really. It's a strategic course that makes you think. The wind is always feels like it's always changing direction as you weave your way around the front line in particular. Uh, and then there was a stretch on the back nine where you sort of play normally against the prevailing wind for a few holes from the uh, championship eleventh tee. Uh, that that great run of holes through Punch Bowl and D, and then Alps and then Hilbury. Those holes along there, but it's it's a. I hate using the word fair because I don't think golf should be fair. You know, it's the reflection of life, isn't it? You hit good shots and get bad results and you hit bad shots and get good results sometimes. And and the best players are perhaps more adept at dealing with that. And, um, and, and you need a, a broad range of skills, I think, to navigate Hoylake. A one-dimensional
0: golfer probably isn't going
1: to do too well, too well
0: here. Yeah, interesting. Like a very St. Andrews vibe about that. She doesn't give up her secrets easily. That's the that's the phrase that's often used, isn't it? Yeah, quite right. I think you know Hoylake,
1: Muirfield, Carnoustie, um, Troon, and 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 the old course. They're all flatter courses where yes, the undulation is very much there, but it's in the ground. It's rather than in the big hills that surround the holes. The undulation is in the holes themselves. And uh, there is no defence from the wind. Now, unfortunately, in the last couple of Opens, we've had no wind at all to speak of. And Any Hoylake member will tell you that that is the normal battle that you face, is, is a strong wind whipping down the D estuary with no protection from the sandhills um, that perhaps a, a, a Burkdale or, or even a Royal St George's at times would give you because you have a little bit of shelter, Well, there's very little out there at Hoylick.
0: We'll get into some specific holes in in a minute or two because you very kindly... Uh, written a piece for us um, which you can view listeners on our website nationalclubgolfer.com which is five holes to watch at the Open. So we're going to get into a couple of them in a, in a minute or two but I just wanted to plug that your way both to get some views for Sam and obviously to be enlightened ahead of the week's activities at Royal Liverpool. Um, but it's important at the outset to stress to listeners and to people watching the Open this week that the routing is different for the championship and role Liverpool plays a little bit differently this week to how it would if you uh, paid your money and came as a visitor. So just explain to us, if you could, the the changes that we see in the routing and and, and what that actually means to the dynamic of the golf course.
1: Well, the routing has... um, I mentioned earlier how John Ball was brought up in a hotel and that hotel is no longer there but it's on Stanley Road. So Stanley Road is the one that the open first and the open second sort of, it's it's the road that you'll see with those big houses on it there. And the championship first green was originally the 18th, and the championship second tee was the first tee because that's where the hotel was. It was on that road over there. And then in about 1890... Seven, I'm going to get my dates wrong there. Uh, but in, in the end of the 20th century, they built the magnificent sort of Victorian villa that this is so famous nowadays as our current clubhouse. And the routing was changed. So what was the second hole there, the one that famously doglegs around the our practice ground, but the, um, the sort of the tented village for the Open Championship that went from being the second hole and became our first hole. The original 18th and first holes, the ones going up and down Stanley Road, they became 17 and 18 for us to get back to that point. So it was really ever since that point, you know, 125-whatever years ago, that um, that there's been that sort of question on the routing, really. But we play from that that first directly in front of the clubhouse, And the hole that is 18 this week, the par 5 that will hopefully cause a few problems to a few people and give us something interesting to watch, that is normally our 16th. And then we play up and down Stanley Road uh, as 17 and 18. Well, they they flip that round. So playing up and down Stanley Road, our normal 17 and 18, they become holes 1 and 2. And then from there, the the normal numbers are just sort of plus 2. Uh, all the way around them, because you, you basically take the last two holes of the course and play them as the first two holes of the course.
0: Is that a logistics question, do you think? Is it so they can get a big grandstand in and they can get the tented villages in, or is it more that they'd like to, the RNA would like the course to play a bit differently to how the members would play?
1: Oh, I don't think necessarily they'd want it to play a little differently. It confuses the hell out of uh, out of me and, and everyone else when we're talking in open numbers. Um, I, I think it's very much uh, Championship 18, and I'll, I'll call them Championship 18 or or Members 18. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so Championship 18 is just the perfect sort of finishing hole. You know, you can get that famous wraparound grandstand all the way around the the green because we have our we have the space around it. It, it plays around the club's practice ground, and that means that you can have, as I say, the the big old grandstand. It means that you can have the Hospitality and all of that kind of stuff—that this is um, this is essential for a modern open championship. So it works very well in in that regard, and it means you finish with a a very strong par five.
0: It's an interesting dichotomy, I think, in the sense that um, the visitors who come, and obviously the members who play there week to week, have a very difficult. First shot, um, because obviously there's the internal out of bounds with the practice grounds, There's the people watching from the clubhouse, you know, right next door. There is, you know, there's you can't really bail to left either because there's some thickets there. I mean, it's a, for, for for the the mortal golfer like ourselves. It's a really really challenging opening. It's probably one of the hardest opening holes I think that that you might find in. In, in, in particularly UK golf. So is there a sense, is there a slight sense of, we'd quite like to see the pros take this on on their first shot rather than when they've actually got into their round? Or is it just, as you say, you know, the opportunity to have that massive finishing hole? We'll talk about 16, 17 and 18 in a minute and how they now link into the the championship routing. But is, is there a slight bit of disappointment amongst the members that Rory doesn't have to Face that out of bounds question that they do on a regular basis.
1: I think Rory will be glad that he doesn't. Um, <laughs> I was so talking about Rory specifically, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, anyone, uh, I I think it's easy to think that pros are utterly infallible as golfers, and to the for the most part, they are really. You know, they're so they're so good, but um, it, it, it's something. It really is uh, that normal. Members first hole, the third hole of the week, uh, this week. But that that hole is so challenging when you've, you know, perhaps you're, like for, for us members, perhaps you're running from your car to the first tee because you've got a match and you haven't given yourself enough time to warm up. And the first two shots of the day that you hit both have out of bounds sort of immediately to the right. And they're not the longest shots in the world. Maybe, yeah, so the pros would play a long iron down to the corner and sort of a mid-iron onto the green um but it's the fact that you're doing that with the first two swings of the day on the golf course so people i think worry that the difficulty of the first hole is slicing it out of bounds and it's not the difficulty of members first hole is hitting it too far left because you're worried about slicing it out of bounds so it, because it dog legs to the right every yard that you go left off the off the tee just means you're adding distance onto your next shot. And then because you're so worried then and you've got a longer club than perhaps you should have had into that green because you've shied away from it, you end up missing that green short left and there's just this really subtle little valley that, that cuts into the front left portion of the green that you've got to chip through and you probably mess it up. You know, that's the... That's the beauty, but people don't see that. That's the subtlety of the golf course. And there is, yes, there is something big and bold and penal to the right, but it's easy to rack up a score by not facing up to it and venturing off too far left. And, and then you've walked off with a five without hitting a bad shot, really. And you go, God, you know, why, why, why didn't I just hit it down the middle instead of all the way over there?
0: Which is precisely what I did. Um, when I last played Royal Liverpool, You're so um, it, obvi- it obviously works. Uh, we, we're naturally going to focus on uh, on on some areas of the back nine, obviously because it's the focus of the the piece that you wrote for us. But but that's because of where a lot of the drama is as well. But that's not to discount um, a fabulous front nine as well that really does um, take you on a journey. I, I just wanted to talk about one hole in particular that that I really love, which is the first par three, which is Championship Six. Um, which is just, I mean, just a fantastic hole for me uh, with its sort of clever bunkering around the green. Um, I, I really love that. And the fact that it will usually play into a crosswind as well. So it will give you, um, it will give the players a really interesting test on how they deal with the wind. But b- before we get into some areas of the back nine, what, what are the particular highlights of the front nine for you um, that you think we should be focusing on?
1: I, I think some of the hardest holes on on the golf course are on the front nine. Um but just thinking about how the pros when when I was talking there about course it's called course so the um, members first the championship third hole I'm actually wondering Steve whether any of the pros this year will take their driver and knock it over the corner um, and and have a little pitch from maybe the left hand rough depending how thick thick it is for for the week. Um, And and that will be perhaps one of the opportunities where the longer hitters will be able to take on the risk and and maybe get some reward at the end of it. So that will be interesting. Um, The first par five on the course is the championship fifth hole. It's called long, but it's the shortest of all the par fives. Um, And I think that's interesting because it's easy, I think, to assume that the hardest holes are the hardest holes. And Mike Clayton, my boss, colleague, whatever, uh, Clayton does a lot of caddying for some of the very best players, especially Australian players. And I remember him telling a story which which really stuck with me. And he would, let's say, that I was actually a decent enough golfer to be playing in any kind of competitive event at Hoylake, and he was caddying for me. And he'd say, Sam, what, you know, what are the hardest holes at Hoylake? And I'd say, well, Championship 3rd, the one we've just been talking about there, that's a real killer. And, and um, Championship 14, where Tiger Woods hold out in 2006 and 2, and we'll probably talk about it in a moment. And, uh, you know, they're probably the two hardest holes on the golf course. And he'd say, no, you know, if you want to win this tournament, the hardest hole of the week is probably Championship Five which is the shortest par five. Because if you don't play that hole in minimum three under par for the week, but really four under par for the week, maybe even throw an eagle in there, if you don't play that hole under par, if you just have, if you par it every day, then you're never going to win the tournament. And it's, it's perhaps for the pros, it's straightforward as a par five. But really, if they're going for a four every day, then there's so much risk and so much difficulty and the green challenges and... And I think that that's a a very underrated test for those very best players looking to win a tournament and to build a score. It's one of the few obvious birdie opportunities out there. So if they don't take it, then they're going to be almost losing ground on the field. So I think that's interesting. The par three that you just mentioned there, the the sixth um, home, is a brilliantly subtle par three where... Realistically, you want to be nestled under the right-hand side of that green, where there's a little backstop there. But all too often, we end up missing the green left, which is just disaster. I, I think that's interesting. Then you've got our member's stroke one, which is a near 500-yard yard par four, um, playing playing down to a new green that was built for for this open. Um, but if, you know, you if you walk off there with a four every day of the week, you'll be happy because that's a beast. Uh, and, and I think there are so many examples where the front line has to be survived really and you've got to plot your way around and not do anything silly because if you do then then uh you're all you can you know there's a double bogey waiting for you so many times.
0: And and then you survive that as you as you uh, nicely put it, to be first by the longest back nine in open history. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe they need to do a bit better than survive the front nine. <laughs> um, yeah, longest back nine. So the fact that it's slightly re- rejigged round means that we have three par fives. Well, no, we don't. The members would have three par fives on the back nine, but the uh, the championship 10th hole is going to be played as a par four for them this week. So in 2014 and 2006, and for all the Opens before that, that was a par five. But they've put the tee slightly further forward this year, only slightly, um, and I think it's going to be about a 508-yard par four. And that's a it's a beautiful hole. It's a brilliant hole and an amazing land uh, with a great green that Harry Colt puts on top of a hill back in the 1920s. But it's also um, a, a serious test. It's a proper four and a half in the same way, you know, the 4th at Royal St George's is a four and a half or the 17th at the old course is a four and a half. And the thing that unites all of those three holes there, the 10th uh, at Hoylake, the the 4th at Royal St George's, the 17th at the old course, is there is a real side to the fairway that you want to be playing your shot in from. Uh, because if you, if you go to the safe side, if you go down the right of the tent for Hoylake or, or the left, you know if you play away from the hotel on 17 at the old course, then you're playing across the axis of the green with a long iron. and The chance of, of holding the green are low, the chance of getting close to the pin are even lower. And it's the same at Hoylake. If you go down the right-hand side, you've got the prevailing wind down off your right-hand shoulder You've got the green angled left to right, sort of away from you. You've got the deepest bunker on the golf course, short right. And you've got this lovely, attractive, safe oasis of short grass to the left of the green, which means that you normally stand on that second shot, going for the green in two, and almost always miss the green left, um, consciously or subconsciously. And how the pros will... Play a cut shot into that green to to get to a back right pin, perhaps, will be really interesting because um, you know as a par four, they've they've really really got to stand up to the test and make sure they make sure they're playing the whole quote unquote properly. Um, but that starts just the best run of golf that I think you'll find anywhere. The that hole there, and then the punch bowl, the next, um, and then the dog-legging par four up the to the best green on the golf course. Uh, the Championship 12 where the green kind of tapers away from a broad front to a very narrow back um, where some of the putts you know it's the old adage you never give a putt on that green as a Hoylake member because there are all of these little borrows that you don't you, you won't notice them at all on the television but the players will be missing a putt on there and doing a double take and wondering how it broke the opposite direction to the way they thought it was going to break it's just brilliant
0: yeah, interesting talking about ten, um, and that, and the and the, the difficulties and the challenge it can provide. Even the best players. I mean, Bobby Jones. I think I think you write about this in your piece. Bobby Jones been widely considered to be one of the greatest players of all time. Almost wrecked his Grand Slam there, didn't he? At ten,
1: so he he went down that uh, short grass runoff down the left that. Uh... That I normally go down, um, and I think he he made a seven on the hold. I think he, he he had a bit of a Thomas Bjorn at sandwich. You know, he he chipped the ball up, albeit from short grass rather than a bunker, but not far enough, and it came back down to his feet, and then and then he did it again. And it's easily done. I think that short grass, when it's really closely mown and it's really tight, and those pros who have such amazing short games there's probably 14 different clubs in their bag that they could use to get up and down from from that kind of lie but the fact that they could you there is such a wide range of shots almost brings a little bit of indecision sometimes if they're between two clubs and they don't quite commit to it as, as much as they should do uh, because it is a real change in in elevation it's also of about um, 10 12 feet really uh, that that runoff. And then everything is is then just runs away on that that false front to the green. So you can be a bit clever and come to regress it pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Thirteen and fourteen um, are two other holes that, that you highlight. I mean, as a one two punch, they're pretty special. I mean, thirteen, obviously the par three. I don't think you can ever go wrong. Find me a hole called Alps that isn't amazing. <laughs> Uh, for a start, uh, and then fourteen, which is described uh, in the um, in the course guide as arguably the finest hole on the link So th- those two holes together were a special part of the golf course.
1: Yes, and everyone can enjoy them because number one, they're they're great testing strategic holes that you've got to hit. You know, you've got to hit perfect shots to survive them. But they're also beautiful. So it doesn't matter if you're hacking about on them. The the views across the D'Estree, um, with the little run of islands that we we have out there, Hilbury Island, um, Middle Eye, and Little Eye, which, uh, two of those three are, are names of holes at Hoylake. Lake. They're just it's the most picturesque spot. I think it's the most picturesque spot on the. Open rotor, okay. Turnbury probably is ahead there, but with that accepted, you know, the the view across with the mountains of North Wales beyond and the sun setting over the estuary there, I think you'll struggle to find a more beautiful spot for golf than than those on, on the rotor. Uh, but the holes themselves are so exacting and so testing that. It's almost this juxtaposition of having to focus and and ignore the the beautiful setting that you're in, and focus on some of the harder shots that you'll play over the course of your your round at, at Hoylake. So, the first of those that we're talking about the the Alps hole, again is a Harry Colt hole that came from his revisions to the course in 1924. And what makes it so interesting is it's. Okay, it's not as long as it once was because the players are a bit stronger than they, and the ball goes a bit further than it did in 1924. But it's 200 yards with normally played into a sort of wind that's into off the left. And when that's blowing, you know, the wind is pushing your ball off the tee left to right. But the green is angled so that you have to hit a shot that goes right to left. So it's those two forces sort of at odds with one another. And it's so easy to not get that quite right and end up in the, in the, the runoff to the left where like the 10th hole, you can hit all of any club in the bag to recover. Um, and there's there's one solitary bunker to the right and that's sort of where you'd be drawing the ball into or, or perhaps the wind is pushing it just to the right and you end up there playing a long bunker shot back into the wind because the green is deep. And if you're in that spot, then, you know, for anyone, even the best players in the world, a long bunker shot is one of the most difficult shots that they can face. So that hole is brilliant for all of those reasons and more besides. And then... 14 um, is is just for me that's the best hole on the golf course that's where Tiger Woods bidden his second shot for a two in 2006 and a bit like the third hole it'll be interesting whether any of them if the wind is favourable whether any of them will hit driver over the corner they're so far back that it's it's a mammoth hit to actually do that but they could you know they're, some of them have long enough to nowadays but what you're doing there is is you're playing this dog leg that that sweeps right to left and there are these two dunes that you play around so there's a big dune on the drive um, and there is a big dune short left of immediately to the front left of the green so if you don't go far enough to the right the big dune will block out your view of the green and you're playing blind. And of course, the pros don't like playing a shot where they can't see the outcome. Well, they can do that. They can get to a spot where you can see it. But to get out to the right, you're playing away from your target. You're making the hole longer. Then with the second shot, if, if, if they have gone over the corner, if anyone does go over the corner, then the chances of them getting far enough to see past the second June are pretty slim. So they'll be playing a pitch, but they'll be playing a pitch where if you miss that green left, it's almost it's almost game over. You know, it, it's it's so brutal down that left hand side. Uh the rough is thick and and it, it drops sort of 30, 40 feet all the way down into the abyss. Uh so again, that asymmetry of defense everyone misses the green to this quote-unquote safe right-hand side in this case where getting up and down from there is is easier but still not close to being easy so it's it's that sort of little bit of a game of chess you know do i go out right and get a line in do i go take the shorter line and play closer to the bunkers on on the on the inside June. as I'm talking about uh, in, in which case uh, everything's kicking away down the right hand side and it's and it's perhaps a blind shot if the pin is tucked on the left it's that sort of dance really with all of those factors that makes it fascinating and again played um, to the backdrop of the wind forcing you down the right hand side um, and, and the most beautiful view that you'll find anywhere
0: yeah Eloquently put, um, let's talk about the hole that has attracted the most attention, which is at 17 on the championship routing. It's obviously 15 for the members, which is little I. Um I mean, Clearly, when you bring in a, a new hole uh, to an open venue, it's going to attract attention. And, and and this one particularly, so because of its nature, how it looks, um, the the green, the, the, the kind of penal prospects of it, what will the wind do? Um, how will the will the pros approach this? Uh, what's your feeling about Little Eye? Uh, for, for, for listeners who don't know, um, you can read about the evolution of the hole on our website, nationalclubgolfer.com. There's a great piece with Alistair Beggs talking about the inspiration of the 17th at Sawgrass there. Um, and you can also, if you're a masochist, read about how I butchered it in my first time there when I played it. Um, so there's plenty to read about there. But Sam, just give me your... View of, of of little eye the hole itself and how it might play for the pros in the open. I suspect it will play a bit differently to them that it does for the average member there.
1: Yes and yes and no. Um, it's quite binary in that you hit the green or you don't hit the green. If you hit the green, and it's only 134 yards. If you hit the green, great. You know you're going to have a shortish put. You've got a chance of making it two, and that's what the architects. Um, Wanted, But if you don't miss the green, the difference between that and the 17th at Sawgrass, which I don't know whether many people have talked about, is the opportunity to compound an error. And, you know, the the green at Sawgrass is over twice the size of the green on Little Eye. It's Sawgrass, okay, it's the same yardage, but it plays perfectly flat, whereas this is quite considerably uphill. So those two factors and the fact that hopefully Hoylake will be rock hard and bouncy and and that's when it plays at its best, when it's baked out and firm, then the ball just doesn't stop where it lands. You know, It stops somewhere else, uh, hopefully quite quickly, as if you're one of the pros hitting the approach shots, which actually means that when it's playing into the prevailing wind, it's almost a bit easier for them because they get a bit more height, they get a bit more spin. So it's easier to stop the ball. If it's downwind one of the days, which is rare, but, you know, it was in 2014, or it would have been if the hole existed, it would have played downwind in 2014. Um, if we have that wind coming the other way around, then stopping the ball on the firm green could prove to be, you know, that's the skill that they'll need to demonstrate. If it's a bit softer, and the wind is against, then it will be a different skill. It will be taking spin off the ball as they fight against the false front. Uh, because if you come in with too much spin into a, uh, into a front f- flag, then it can zip all the way back down off the off the front and then end up in that cavernous sort of waste area, revetted bunker to the front, which is just you know one of the trickiest recovery shots that you could possibly face so there's danger on every single side of the of the hole and the point i was making with sawgrass i think if you miss the green there you're in a you're in the water but you're in a drop zone and you've got a little flick onto the green and maybe get up and down for a four but the worst is you're walking off of a five well at Hoylake, it's a Arguably harder green to hit. So if you do miss it, then okay, you're in a bunker shot. And if you get the bunker shot right first time, if you play it absolutely perfectly, then fine, you will walk off with a with maybe a three, but no worse than a four. But as soon as you miscue the bunker shot, and it's easily done, like it's those bunkers, the bunker down the right hand side, as an example, that's ten foot deep, the revetting. But then you've got, well, you've played it, Steve. How much then have you got from the edge of the bunker to the edge of the green? You've got like another 10 plus feet of to get it up the sides. But don't go too far, because then you're down the other side of of it. Um, As soon as, I think someone will not get it perfectly and it will run back down into their footprint or, or where they've just played from. And then as soon as that happens, boy oh boy, you know, you're in for a you have got your work cut out then. So as soon as you make a little error on the on the recovery around that green, I think at that point it becomes uh, it, it it could get away from you. So that that will be interesting to see how they how they manage that. Um, I don't think any of them will be going for any pins when they're put around the edges. I think they'll be playing for the middle of the green and hoping that they judge the winds and the elevation and the firmness and everything just right so that they can survive that hole, which at 134 yards, you know, they'll be ecstatic, I think, if they have four threes on that hole over the week.
0: Yeah, I understand the comparison with. Sawgrass, obviously 17th for a start, and the inspiration that it provided to Alistair Beggs, which clearly people can read about in, in the piece that I've written on our website. I mean, I I think and it's just a personal view that probably a more direct comparison is probably with the postage stamp at Roll Troon, where, you know, if you're short, you're dead. If you're in the bunkers, you're dead. If you're long, you're in a lot of trouble. If you're left, you're dead, and and it feels like there's a, a kind of similar vibe for me that the ch- the challenges hit the green or or face the consequences of that.
1: It, it's interesting, yeah. There's the postage stamp is has drawn comparisons for, yeah, for all those reasons you've said, and the fact that they're the two shortest holes on the Open rotor. yeah, but. I actually think that there are a few reasons why it's quite uh, different from the postage stamp. And firstly, it would be the T's. you know, the postage stamp, the T is higher than the green. So it's a level playing, shot. Yeah. It's a level shot. I think you're actually playing slightly downhill, but what that means is if the wind is against your face or the wind is blowing anyway, you can judge it that bit better because you, you know, you, you can flight a ball. It's easier to flight a ball into the wind over a level shot than it is over a shot that plays 20 feet plus uphill. So that would be difference number one. I think at Hoylake, if the wind is strongly against... And look, it might be that there's no wind and they just flick it on and, and everything we're talking about is sort of nullified slightly. But if the, wind, the prevailing wind is against them, then... They're blocked out. They can't feel it. You know, they're they're also going to have a, a grandstand, I think, around the tee. So it's going to be this calm cauldron of, uh, you know, sort of expectation as they hit that short tee shot, and they won't be able to feel the wind. And then as soon as the ball gets above the hill, as soon as it gets above the height of the green, then it might just get buffeted by a, a gust of wind, and and it only has to. You know, sort of five percent miscalculation from the wind over that shot, and they could be short or long, and and in some real bother. So that's the first difference where I think it's it's slightly plays slightly differently. The the next would be the green is so small. The postage stamp green, it, it, despite being called the postage stamp, is actually quite big. It's about a hundred feet from front to back at, at Troon. And the beauty of the green there is it's almost twice the width at the front as it is at the back. So you can stand on the tee, and if the pin's at the back, you basically say, like let's say it's a pitching wedge to get to the pin at the back. You can say, well, you know what, I'm going to hit my gap wedge. I'm going to trust my lag putting. And if I play to the front of this postage stamp green, then... I've got two times the chance of hitting it because it's twice the width at the front. But if I want to make it two and I want to get to the back, then I've got to be twice as accurate in order to, to hit this, this tapering green. So I think that's a, a difference, whereas um, at Little Eye, the green is just is small. It's 60 feet front to back, um, and it's got a false front as well. So y- your landing area is pretty narrow, so they've got to be utterly, utterly precise with how they play that, otherwise um, otherwise they're in trouble. And then the third thing I'd say is the bunkers, those especially those coffin bunkers on the left-hand side of the postage stamp green, they're, whilst they're deep and they're nasty and you sure as hell don't want to be in them, they're the same height as the green. And the ones on the right are the same height as the green. Whereas at Hoylake generally, uh, on, on Little Eye anyway, um, all the bunkers are at the bottom of the hill so you're not just playing the depth of the bunker like we said before you're playing the depth of the bunker plus then another 15 feet of of apron before you get to the green and I think that is uh all makes for you've just got to be precise uh because it is it is very much a penal you know it's a penal golf hole that you've got to play perfectly otherwise you're going to be up against it
0: yeah I think you've Um, unveiled the conundrum for amateurs there in the sense that we'd say it's 134 yards but actually if it's 134 yards into a two club wind with a slope that requires another club then you can be hitting I mean I hit eight iron in there and was short and couldn't believe it um, because I thought I've hit the exact club on the number but I'd failed to take into account the wind the slope the uphill, how much you know, how much more club that you need to hit there. And I think that's perhaps why it's proved such a difficult hole for the average golfer. And that's before you even add in the bunkers, the Sanskrit, the size of the green itself. I mean, I, th- I think we're going to see some real drama there. I think it's going to be tremendous.
1: I think so too. I think even if it's flat calm, you, you know, the points I made before about pros being maybe slightly less unfathomable than we think, uh, you know, if you if you're on Twitter and you follow like Lou Stagner or or those guys, um, they constantly remind you how often a pro will actually miss a green from X distance, and it's more than you think. And you know, we're used to watching PJ Tour where the greens are soft, and the people that are being shown on the broadcast are the people who are absolutely dialed in that week because they're the leaders. But across a field of 100 and you know better than I how many people are actually playing in the in the tournament, but across a field playing at least two rounds, but half of them playing four rounds, even on flat calm, some of them will miss the green, and uh, as soon as there is a bit of a wind or or anything like that, then let's say it goes from being four and five that hit it, it might just get to three and five that hit it then, and then the the two and five that are recovering. Well, you know, by the time the time enough players have
0: gone through, there's there'll be there will be people who miss the green absolutely. Yeah, and the change obviously to 17th a new hole there allows an extension for Championship 18, which is a par five finish, 611 yards. I mean, it is set, isn't it? I mean, it's designed, I think, for a risk and reward finish for those who may need to put their foot on the gas for the open. You know, the the chance to make two on on 17, perhaps. Maybe an eagle on 18, or certainly they, you know, if they need it, they'll be looking for birdie there. But it can very easily go wrong. I mean, it's it's set up, isn't it, for some excitement, Championship Sunday?
1: Well, that, that is absolutely a, a great benefit of the new par three is that not just the Championship 18th, but also Championship 15th can be lengthened uh, as much as they have been. And Hoylake historically was famous for just the most brutish run-in in terms of of length. Um, and I think, you know, you've got three sorts of parts to a round of golf at Hoylake. You start off with, it's not the longest stretch, but it's strategic. You think your way round. you play to the parts, you try and construct a score uh, by good iron play, I would say, for the first sort of section. Then you get to the middle, the middle run, where it's all about the the big dunes and and that run in the sand hills where uh, they're just magnificent holes uh, and they would grace any golf course that you could possibly stick them on. Um, they're they're just they're brilliant. But then the the third and final act is essentially it's big and brawny and the fifteen. That was 540 yard yards last time played down prevailing wind. Well, now that's 618, I think, or, or certainly in that, in, it, within the, that, that sort of region. So it's a monster. And then you've got the championship 16th, which plays again into the prevailing wind, coming back the other way. Well, that's a par 4, and you'll often hit the previous par 5 downwind more often than you'll hit the the following par 4 into the wind, because it's, it's again, it's super long and, and tough. Now, if there's no winds, they'll be hitting a little flick into it, but if the wind blows, then that's a long hold as well. Then you play the new par 3, and then, as you say, you stand on a tee 610 yards away from, from the home green, dog-legging all the way around the practice ground in the other direction now, uh, but with it still on the right-hand side. Um, and Yeah, you know, to hit that green in two this year is going to require two absolute monsters to get home. And the fairway is so narrow. And it will be interesting to see how they play that hole. I'll be really interested to see where they aim their drives on that hole, whether they take on the risk and try and get home in two or not. You know, whether they sort of... Um, will play for a layup, you know, if they play slightly out left and then they leave themselves a 100 yard pitch into the green and, and they try and play it that way. That will be really interesting. And again, I guess a lot of it will depend on the wind.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it'll be, I mean, I think um, it's a question upon which a claret jug should be decided, isn't it? You know, if a player who's a shot or two behind hits a very good drive of 18 and has that question, you know, do I, do I, how much do I want to win it? I mean, I think that's I think that's what produces drama and what produces excitement. And certainly if we get the conditions that we look like we're going to get, I mean, hopefully it's going to be baked out. The signs are so far that we're going to see really a browned-off Hoylake, which, I mean, for anyone who was there in 2006, that's just what I remember about that magical championship, just looking at the magnificence of that turf, the dormant grass, um, and if we get some wind as well as as you said earlier on, I mean the signs Sam, are that we're going to have an exceptional week on our hands, isn't it?
1: Well, fingers crossed, Steve. Yeah, uh, I'm, I mean it's when Hoylake plays as it's best when it's firm. Um, yeah, you, you know I think you've got people out there who maybe don't appreciate that so much about Lynx Golf because you're used to um, you're used to the green verdant grass of augusta and, and and see things immaculately presented and but you need it to be brown for it to be firm and when it's firm that's when the pros are out of their comfort zone because they know they hit balls on a track man or whatever every single day of the year and they know that they carry their whatever club 184 and a half yards so that you know they know what it does so if if the ball stops when it lands, then it becomes a little bit more target golf, and and it's their strength. You're playing to the pros' strength. Whereas, if the ball lands 184 and a half yards at Hoylake and it's baked out firm, then it, does it pitch into an upslope? In which case, it could even roll backwards. Does it land on the flat or a downslope? In which case, it could run out to 200 and something. You know, it's it brings another layer of. Uh, it brings another variable into play. And I think it's another reason why the best players do so well, because they can judge it. They can see it. They're the artists who know that landing a ball short of this green, it should run up and release. And and if they just knock down the flight a bit, it will get to that back pin. Whereas if they hit a higher shot, it might not It might not make it all the way back there. You know, that's what brings uh, so much interest into Lynx golf. Uh, so hopefully it will be firm and fiery because
0: Hoylakes is its best when it is. You're going to get to enjoy this week. You're going to get to watch some golf, or are you going to be? Are you, are you going to find yourself a person in demand as as the Open winds its way through? Uh, I, I imagine that I will be enjoying it.
1: Well, like we're we're recording this after an um, amazing day the other day at uh, West Lancs watching uh, Matthew Jordan who. So Matt is, I think I was probably nine and and been playing golf at Hoylake when he joined when he was about seven, and we've grown up together. You know, there's a group that I mentioned at the Starsers podcast, um, who who all grew up playing golf together at, at Hoylake, and there were a group of us there the other day at Westlands watching Matty shoot ten under par to um, to qualify for an Open on his home golf course where, you know, we would, he's brilliant. He's one of the, there'll be people who don't know anything about him because, uh, but he played in the Walker cup at 27 in 2017 over at LA country club. Um, and he turned pro off plus seven and as good as he is at golf, full stop, you know, at, at anywhere at Li- and, at Lynx golf and at Hoylake, he's legitimately will be one of the best players in the world. Now the like the level of expectation and the home crowd and everything else, you know, it's been nigh on impossible to do anything. Uh, there is zero expectation on him. Um, but it, to be able to walk around and, and watch watch a lad that I've known for my whole life um, play in the Open Championship at its home course, you know, that's, that's what I'll be doing. That's what I know all of the members of Hoylake will be doing. And it's just adds another dimension to what's going to be a special week already.
0: Well, it's what the Open is all about, isn't it? And we wish, um, Matthew, a lot of luck. We wish you and uh, all the members of Hollow Lake a fantastic week this week at the Open. Sam, thanks for joining me on the from the Clubhouse podcast.
1: Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me.